Welcome to the Rise and Search podcast. I'm your host, David Lovejoy, inviting you on an exploration of the global business landscape. Join me as we discover insights from world-class professionals. Okay, so Matt Fulbrook, thank you very much for coming on. My pleasure. Could you please give a brief introduction on who you are and what you're doing? Yeah, so thanks for having me. I spend kind of embarrassing amount of time and have spent an embarrassing amount of my life thinking about, studying, ag- agonizing over, hanging out with, making fun of boards of directors and senior executives of organizations in basically any sector I've looked at and worked with. Everything from tiny charities to big listed companies to cooperatives to family enterprise to tiny ventures to government agencies, whatever. And so now I'm spending most of my time in that space on either sort of direct hands-on advisory work with any number of different types of organizations at that level, and then kind of a creating countercultural intellectual property thought leadership or whatever you want to call it in the form of podcasts and articles and blogs and any type of thing that anyone will give me a platform to do. So this is one of those things. So in my third life, I'm a professional musician. How long have you been a musician? Well, kind of forever. I've been, so since I was a little kid, I've been playing something, but the current act that I'm playing with is a band called Casey Roberts and the Live Revolution. Casey, who's the band leader, he and I met in high school and we've known each other forever. And and this band has been making albums. This version of the band has been making albums since 2009-ish. Uh-huh. We just put out our eighth studio album. It's all original last year, about a year ago. Okay. And what does playing in a band do for your knowledge of board governance? Maybe nothing for the knowledge, but it doesn't mean it's not a useful asset. In fact, I don't think it would surprise you that you can make a meaningful connection really quickly with somebody by talking about music compared to, say, talking about corporate governance. Even if I'm in the room to -hmm. talk about corporate governance, it's easier to make a connection talking about music because in any given room, you're going to have at least a handful of people who play music and everyone or mo- almost everybody will be a fan of music. And it's more interesting in some ways, but it's also significantly less intimidating to build a connection through music compared to building a connection through boards, for example. Music seems to be intrinsic. As you were saying that, I've never met anyone who doesn't like music, yet it's not something right. we're necessarily born with. Why do you think that is? Oh, I don't know if I'd have enough intelligence to come up with a good theory, but I'll tell a very quick story, something that I thought was really interesting and helpful to me to see how important this is. When I worked at the University of Toronto for 20 years, one year there was a student, an MBA student named Rafa Colon, who I've stayed in touch with a little bit. He's a great musician, and he was, I think, the head of the student council or something like that, and he did a survey of all of the students, so let's say there's 300 odd students, and he found that about 100 people who self-identified put up their hand and said, yes, I'm a musician. So he started a music club and he approached me because he'd heard that I was a musician. I said, well, where's this coming from? Like, why does this matter to the student body? And he said, well, you know, if I find myself in the elevator spontaneously with anyone from this building and I have a conversation about music, I build a connection way better than if I talk about what's coming up in the next class or what are we working on on our next project or how's your job search going. Mm -hmm. And he also felt like, well, this is a really short 
path to creating community if I get a music club together and there's already 80 or 100 people in it. And they and he did. And they started playing shows together. And it was an unbelievable community right from the start. And I thought, shit, you know, I think I might be underusing my musical stuff as a kind of gateway for community building in my career. So I don't know if it teaches me about boards as much as it teaches me about community building. Okay. That makes sense. I imagine there was some fertile soil for growth or some unique value add to your position. And I'm going to break convention a little bit and do a plug mid-podcast and just mention for people that aren't aware that you have this podcast called Ground Up Governance that's really punchy, really short, like 15-minute clips, amazing audio engineering. Like it sounds beautiful. (laughs) Uh, I can really appreciate that now having a podcast of my own. So props to you there. (laughs) Certainly uh, paid your dues, it sounds like, in the music industry leading up to that. But speaking about boards, like I have to admit, I don't know much about them. And when you came on to speak to us at the Engaged Leadership Program with the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade, I was open to learning new things and you seem like a fun guy, but boards to me sound boring. And Uh I was curious, like what led you to becoming interested in boards? Why are they not boring? Why are they not bureaucracy? I was wondering if we could kind of uh, dive into that a little bit. Yeah, thanks. So I don't think anyone would believe the sort of origin story of my career if I told them anything other than the truth, which is it was a complete accident. I don't think anyone can be particularly intentional about finding themselves in this space. And so the story of the accident, it honestly isn't particularly interesting. What was more interesting about the story was one piece of the accident was timing, which was I got involved in 2001, 2002. This is right in the wake of Enron, WorldCom, Parmalat, Nortel, Tyco, everything all had just happened. And there was no guarantee that anyone would care about corporate governance as a headline in any enduring way. But I just found myself on some projects in that space. And it turned out, oh, wow, people really do care still, right? It's headlines every day and such a an interesting industry that's built up around it. And I happened to be in a space where it was right at the beginning of the proliferation of that industry. So the other element of the accident that was really amazing was by the time I resigned from the university a couple of years ago, I was 20 years into a career where there's, as far as I know, literally nobody else in Canada who's had 20 years in this space and still has another 20 years ahead of them. Right? I don't think that's ever happened before. So I've got this unusual confluence of privilege, I guess, not the least of which was having started very young. And what that gave to me, and I'll get, I promise I'll answer your question in a second. No problem. Take your time. Thanks. It gave me the time and the opportunity to embrace a lot of conventional thinking, hmm. question it, and let go of it, and still have lots of time to keep going, right? But a lot of the people I know in this space, when they get to the point in their career where they've been able to let go of some of the conventional thinking, they're done, right? They're just like, ah, shoot, I wish I'd gotten here earlier. Uh So I've got this cool opportunity now, to the extent that I'm interested and to the extent that anyone wants to listen, to start questioning and providing different ways or different lenses to look through things. So this is where I can get to your question, which is boards are boring. (laughs) And yeah, right. Boards are boring. They are bureaucratic. If you think about it from the perspective of uh, an entrepreneur, Hmm. 
when you bring up the term governance, the first thing they think of is boards. Mm-hmm. And when they think of boards, they think of this is going to be really time consuming and bureaucratic mm. and slow. It's going to cost me a lot of money. And most importantly, I'm going to lose control. Mm. Right now, all of a sudden, I've given Where up control to some other people. <laughs> yeah, right. Sounds awful. So they're not wrong, right? It is all those things. And even the, the theoretical advantages to a working fiduciary board being you're sharing liability and accountability for big decisions and you get some smart people in the room who have skin in the game and they so they they are inclined to discharge their duty in service of you as a business owner and the other people who are affected and so on and so on it sounds good but they come into the room indoctrinated by people like me to have a very compliance oriented mindset so if you take a director education course, or you read most of the articles and thought leadership and books and so on that are out there, or you look up case studies on boards and governance, almost all of it is framed through a catastrophe avoidance lens. And so boards come into the room thinking or being programmed to behave as catastrophe avoiding machines. Okay. And then come out of it complaining to me, the call me or someone else saying, we're really struggling to add value here. Mm-hmm. You know, we're doing our job, but we still don't feel like we're adding much value. What's going on? And it took me a really long time to realize that it's the entire conventional system working against them. So maybe the better answer to your question is an aspirational one, which is boards are boring and they don't want to be they shouldn't be is a significant missed opportunity to do something cool instead of something boring. And that's kind of what I'm hoping to work on with the next phase of my life. So they don't have to be boring. And it sounds like perhaps there was a generation gap with you starting inboard governance so young. Was that the case? Yeah, it's strange. It's kind of transitioning now a little bit, but it's very strange to think that here I am 20 years into a career and I'm still the young guy, right? So I'm the one with, in a lot of cases, the most experience huh. and I'm still younger than almost anyone else in this space. This is, so it's just starting because I'm, you know, now I'm not officially young anymore. So I'm young relatively, but it's getting close. But yeah, that's the best illustration of that generation. Yeah, right, right. That's the best illustration of this generation gap that you're talking about is that- So you get it both ways. Here I am. Yeah, I I do. Yeah, this is another axis of privilege. You're an odd cat. (laughs) You're a a musician who's in board governance, who's old but young and just misunderstood. Well, I think the misunderstood part, which might be factually correct, is definitely (laughs) also intentional. Okay, lean into it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a good friend of mine called me countercultural. I might have used that term already too, and I like it, but it does seem a bit more provocative. Someone else very recently gave me the greatest compliment. This just a few days ago. He described the stuff that I'm up to now as anti-gravity. Huh. And I thought, oh, that's so much better than counterculture. And it's a better description of what I'm trying to do too, because the status quo has a significant gravity to it. Yeah. What are the tools or the assets that we can put in play that act as anti-gravity? So anti-gravity going into a board, which is the super gravity, it would seem. What does that look like in your view? Like, where are you trying to take things in, say, the next five years? I'm going to be a little bit cautious to be too specific, partly because my mind changes constantly. 
Okay. So I, if you asked me three weeks, yeah, right. If you'd asked me three weeks ago, I probably would have given you a different answer than what I'd give you today. No, and the path to getting there is still really unclear to me, but let me, let me answer your question the best I can. So right now, 90% of what happens or maybe more, but let's say 90% of what happens in any given boardroom is optional, not working very well. And exactly the same as what happens in every other boardroom. Sounds horrible. Well, it's not just horrible, but it's weird, right? Think about that. That everyone does the same, not very good stuff that they don't have to do. Yeah. It's very weird. Yeah. And part of that is that there's this massive chunk of, you know, legal stuff and regulatory stuff that feels very scary. And so we spend a lot of time agonizing over that. But also part of it is there, I don't know which one is the chicken and egg or whatever, but there are no or very few counterexamples out in the world. So if you find yourself in a boardroom or as a senior executive or an entrepreneur saying, oh, this isn't really working very well, what could I do differently? You could ask a hundred organizations and they're giving you, they might give you examples of changes at the margins, but nobody is really, not, no one I've met has really said, you know what, the whole thing isn't working. <laughs> You know, so the real spirit of what I'm hoping to do is to help people realize that it's optional, right? So that we can say, okay, well, what's better? And the answer is we have to experiment. So part of my job is to experiment and bring out into the world some ideas that may not be 100% proven, but that I can say, look, Let me give you some examples of things that I've been trying out in the real world that are different, that are intended to overcome some of the gravity that you're trying to break and that work better than the status quo, even if they're not perfect. Mm -hmm. And by trying to convince organizations to try these things, my hope is that they'll realize, oh, that wasn't very hard. What else can we try? Instead of just continuing to do the same stuff that they and everybody else have done. And I'm happy to give specific examples if that's of interest to you. But the philosophy of it is to acknowledge that what boards do isn't very good and it's optional. So let's do something better. And it seems like there's a, a kind of undergirding, if you will, to all of that, that they are still essential. Is that fair to say? Well, they're legally essential. Yeah, you have any incorporated entity has to have a board. So my little one person corporation has a board. It's me. And it has an employee, which is me. And it has a shareholder, which is me. So technically speaking, I have a board. And that is a legal necessity, regardless of your corporate model. So the moment you're incorporated as a not-for-profit or any other type of corporation, you have to have a board. There's very few... Unless you're a listed company, there are very few rules about what that has to be. And even listed companies, the rules are quite permissive. So yes, they are necessary, but they can look and feel like a lot of different things, which is another reason why the fact that they look and feel most of the same everywhere is pretty strange. Well, thank you for shedding light on the legal requirement. I was hoping to also maybe have a little glimmer of optimism as to like, it's great that they are legally required because they are also very helpful or important in some respect. Is that the case or is that a pipe dream? No, I think, I mean, the boards that I dream of are almost like magic. Okay. And there are moments of magic that I've experienced in boardrooms. Okay. And the magic can take a lot of different forms, but I'll generically describe it as, you know how sometimes you find 
a topic of conversation that really matters to a group of whether it's friends or colleagues or it doesn't really matter. And you find yourself exploring it in ways that are so much greater than the sum of the parts of the individuals who are a part of the conversation. And yes, sure, in a boardroom, that magic should be funneled into action. But usually we're not even looking for the magic in the first place. Mm. Right. So you and I can imagine that experience and we know how much value comes out of it. And we can imagine in an organization taking that magic and distilling it into a few different things that we're going to do as a result. But most people don't look at boards as being there for that reason. What they look at them as, again, is catastrophe avoiding machines and compliance machines, which is about the least inspiring thing I can think of. See a brand change in the cards call them magic boards or something. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, right. And nobody would say, oh, no, I don't want that. Right. In fact, I do this frequently. I'll ask a room full, let's say it's a classroom full of directors from different organizations. They'll say, put up your hand if you think that you'd like your, you'd wish that your board would be more creative. Every hand always goes up. And if you dig a little bit deeper, well, so first of all, what we've acknowledged that there's an aspiration that all of us share. So this is a problem that's shared among every single organization represented in this room. But if you ask, tell me some of the things that you do to try to access that creativity, the answer is, well, that's not really what we do. And this is one example of many where we've got boards or a group of people, senior executives and directors who wish things were different, but don't realize that that difference or the change is at hand. All they need to do is try, but they don't really see that as part of the work they're supposed to be doing. Is that where you come in? Well, that's where I hope I don't have to come in eventually because, you know, there's latent desire. It's already there, right? So that is where I come in right now. The desired impact for me in this space is to kind of, and I know this sounds arrogant, but... Not be needed? Yeah. Well, what I want is to spark a universal movement where everybody changes as a result, right? Because again, the only More thing I'm doing megalomaniac is... than arrogant. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, yes, maybe. But I, I think all I'm trying to do is feedback to boards and executives the things that they say to me, hmm. right? Because they're telling me, we want to be more creative. We want to be more strategic. We want to hmm. be more innovative. Okay. And we're not trying. Okay. Why? I see. Right. And I can hopefully admit this will be a combination of messaging, but also giving them opportunities to try new things and practice. I can hopefully help them realize that it's not all that difficult and certainly not expensive to just replace the conventional behavior with the behavior that they actually want. Yeah. And so it's not like you're adding something on top. It's just replace, right? right? Get rid of the stuff that's not helping and replace it with the stuff that you actually think would add value to your organization, right? Again, I don't know if I'm, I feel like I'm being annoyingly vague. So maybe no, if you, if you want me to get more specific, there. you can dig sure. deeper. Yeah. No, absolutely. Just to kind of add on to the last point you made, I recently signed up for a, a speech coach to help me with my podcasting. So I don't use as many filler words and this and that. And my speech coach said something similar where You can just unlearn that you've adapted to have these filler words. You can just focus on not doing it for like an hour and it never comes back. It's almost like stopping hiccups or something, which was really interesting. 
I'm not there yet, by the way. So it's call me out if you no, like. You sound great. You sound really good. <laughs> Thank you. Should have heard me yesterday. <laughs> yeah, well, it all takes is an hour. I like that example. And, you know, I think that there's an interesting compulsion to think that there's a specific solution that works for everybody here. You know, I think I don't know much about cleaning up sort of speech and being clearer and so on. I've got my own tricks, but I, I feel myself breaking them constantly. Yeah. And I suspect that the path for you would be different from the path for me would be different completely, again, for someone who's got a I'd speech impediment, so. for example. Yeah, right. And so instead of looking for this, okay, what's the one path that we need to travel down? And at the end of it is good governance, although I do have an answer to that question. Okay. Instead of looking for that one path or a narrow path and say, as long as we do these things, then we're good, to realize that maybe it's many paths that you have to explore to get there, or maybe the whole point is being curious or whatever it is. So you've heard this from me in, in the course. Okay. My current phrasing of what I think good corporate governance is, is being intentional about cultivating effective conditions for making decisions. So that means the act is the intentional cultivation of conditions right? It's not the making decisions. Obviously, we make decisions. But if we aren't intentional about the inputs into the decisions, then the outputs become, I'm going to exaggerate for the sake of making a point, they become kind of random. And this idea of conditions, the first question I get usually is, what do you mean by conditions? And my answer is kind of everything, Right. And it turns out that every stone I've turned over in the past year or so since I've been on this particular journey, not only can you find instinct, you can kind of feel from your own experience. Oh, yeah, you know, I can I can think of times when I was underperforming because I hadn't had coffee that day. And then you can go on Google Scholar and say caffeine and cognitive performance. And you're like, oh, it turns out that caffeine does affect cognitive performance and also reduces mortality from all causes overall. But then we can think, yeah, right. you're not a caffeine guy? No, I love me some coffee. Okay, good. So then we can take a step back and say, okay, when was the last time we were intentional about caffeine going into a board meeting? And we'd say well, maybe we put out coffee, we wouldn't really think much about it. We say, well, maybe we should, right? Maybe we should think about what are we serving to make sure that people feel excited to actually consume it? When are we serving it? How are we serving too much or too little? Or Because we know both instinctively and scientifically that it does affect the performance of the people in the room. And all we've been thinking about is how do we create pre-reads and what should our agendas be? And those matter. But it turns out things that feel trivial like caffeine and lighting and temperature and room layout and all that stuff matter just as much because it doesn't matter if you've given people the right information. If the lighting is wrong, it turns out that they make decisions differently. So again, let's learn about it. Let's be intentional about it. Let's ask ourselves, okay, what result do we actually want from this meeting? And how can we be intentional about the conditions, both physical and psychological and so on? to feed into the decision in a way that's going to serve us best. And we're going to get it wrong, but it, we want it to be better than being completely accidental. Because it's a step away from the status quo towards the desired outcome. There's a lot to what you just said. And perhaps that's because you've been in this game a while, but <laughs> uh, being intentional about your environment, increasing the probability of success, 
things like lighting. It, it affects your psychology, which affects your cognitive like gravity. There's a lot to what you said there. My goodness, there's so much. I, I, I'm, I feel like I'm at a buffet. I don't know where to choose. Let's go back to strategy. You mentioned that some boards will ask you, like, make us more strategic. We want to implement strategy. How do we do that? This might pertain to some of my audience who are in entrepreneurs through acquisition. They go in and buy a company that's been around for a decade or more. And they sure. might have a board in place already. They might be adding to it. They might be replacing it. And as they take over this company and grow it over the, let's say, a decade, things change in the outside environment. Things change within the company. There's so many moving parts. And to try to make a point with this, how do you apply the tacit knowledge that someone has by being a veteran in an industry that got them the position on that board seat to then adapt and change. Isn't there this like sunk cost fallacy? We're like, no, I'm so-and-so from such and such. Uh, I don't need to change. The world needs to change. That's why I'm the leader. How do you like negotiate that difference scaled out to multiple board members to have a holistic, adaptable, yet capable board? Yeah. Okay. There's a lot of different overlapping types of answers to this question that you have to not have to, but it's helpful to try to understand at least a little bit about all the different layers. And I don't know that I'm going to get all of them. That's okay. So on the one hand, we've got the idiosyncratic characters in the room, right? So we've got people with different skill sets, different levels of expertise and experience, different personalities, different moods, different everything. And there's if we want to think of this in terms of, let's say, inclusion, and we go back to this conditions concept, there's, as far as I know, there's no one set of conditions that's going to optimize the inclusions of everybody in the room simultaneously. So we have to ask ourselves, for those people coming from different sort of perspectives that you're talking about, are we going to seek a compromise where everybody's equally unhappy for the whole meeting? Or are we going to try to understand what it takes to activate each of these people individually and try to give everybody their time to shine. And those are two really different questions. I would, uh, there are two different paths you can travel. I would argue that most boards that I meet take neither path and instead choose to just sort of show up and hope that things go okay. But I think trying to understand people and if you've got, let's say, stubborn folks in the room and you know that and you know you want something out of them being curious about what it takes despite their stubbornness is going to work in your favor instead of just being like oh david's just always so stubborn and we've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas you got me to use the simpsons reference so that's one piece there's another piece which is you've got the sort of conventional corporate director, and I don't care which sector you're in, is somebody who kind of looks like a CEO or other senior executive and is being brought in because they've got a certain level and depth of operational experience and expertise and success. And they're being put into a construct where they're not operators and they are being given a huge pile of operational data and being told, okay, you're a director now, do director stuff now, without a whole lot of guidance about what the difference is, except theoretically. And so they come into the room and they flex their operational muscles and they get really annoying to the CEO and the rest of the team, right? Because what else are they supposed to do? 
So the most common phone call I get is from CEOs who are just like, Matt, I heard you're the board guy. My board is just so annoying. They're always in my business. They never talk about strategic stuff. They're always, you know, talking about the misplaced comma on slide 36 and the color of the paint in the lobby and all that stuff. Is that not where strategy begins? Grammar? Yeah, right. Punctuation? Exactly. And I'll say to them, look, well, tell me some of the things that you've tried to make it better. Hmm. And again, yeah, I've tried nothing and I'm all out of ideas. And so there's this misunderstanding. I I think everybody thinks it's everybody else's job to show up better. I think I'm starting to like this idea. I'm guilty of of that hack. Yeah, me too. Oh, shoot. Like, why wouldn't we be right? Mm. And that this is I'm very empathetic to the, the situation here, because, again, nobody really told that director who's been a CEO their whole life. This is what we want from you when you walk in the room, like do these things. And I don't know what I want, but I'll know it when I see it. Yeah, right. And I'll complain about it in the meantime. (laughs) Yeah. And this is why I really like that intentionally cultivating effective conditions for making decisions and then giving Mm -hmm. people a whole menu of conditions Mm -hmm. to choose from and say, these, this isn't an exhaustive list. Everything that you think affects the people around you and yourself as you're making this decision. It's in play. Your job is be intentional, right? And that suddenly reframes the whole job as something different, right? So the difference between just being a plain old regular director and someone who's doing good governance is that intentionality. Okay. And suddenly you're just like, okay, you know what? I don't really care about the lighting and the food and all that stuff, but I do really feel like it would be great to get a video from the CEO explaining in their own words what they think we're supposed to be taking away from the pre-read. So maybe I'll ask them to, because I kind of like videos. Well, there you go. You've, you've been intentional about the medium and you've been intentional right. so about start. the style. Right. It's important, right? All these things matter. There might be other people in the room who say, I hate videos. And you're like, great. Well, you've still got the 3000 page pre-read that you can poke through, <laughs> like whatever you like. Yeah. And I don't know that I've understood your question perfectly, but if I am understanding it well, (laughs) okay. From the perspective of that entrepreneur, the sort of generic entrepreneur that you're talking about, it's in my opinion, they have a lot more control or influence over the effectiveness of the board than the board does, because the board is going to be showing up and eating what they've been fed. Right. Both literally and figuratively. Okay. And so if you're feeding them something and the result is not what you want, feed them something different. Be intentional about what you're feeding them. Yeah. That's good advice. It's funny how we don't really think about that. I'd like to, if you can, I I understand maybe you can't get into specifics, but could you shed some achievements you're proud of? Well, like some big turnaround on a board or something like Share what you do. Salah's on you. Okay, so I can't be too self-congratulatory at the moment because okay. most of this stuff is too new for me to it takes know 20 years. how well it works. <laughs> well, I hope not, but you might be right, right? Okay. It's so wow. hard to know what the, the appropriate horizon is. And it's literally, like, I'm not kidding. This is most of the stuff that I'm telling you is a year old or less. I'm talking about this sort of mindset. And the mindset is the starting point, and then the creation of material around it is the next step, and then the deployment of material is the next step. And that deployment is very much a work in progress. But I won't leave you empty-handed. The one amazing thing that's happened is, so if I wanted to characterize the way 
the result of, and this is going to sound really self-deprecating, but I'm not exaggerating, and I know my peers can relate to this, the net result of the first 20-odd years of my career in which I embraced and propagated the status quo was everybody would come out of a course or an engagement and they would say, that was really good. I learned a lot and nothing changed afterward. You know, they might tweak a little thing here or there, but nothing really changed, right? They'd still come back the next year and complain, we're not being strategic enough. The board is all in my business. We're not spending our time effectively, whatever. Same complaints forever. And now what happens is this reframing is so easy to understand and has so much action baked into it that it only takes, and I'm not exaggerating, if I had 10 or 15 minutes with a board, they may not come out of it with the equipment they need to really do something new, but they will come out of it thinking like, oh, I understand something differently than I understood before, right? I thought it was this other thing for however long. Now I see it differently and I can imagine what a better future might be. And then if we have even more time together, then they come out of it with some stuff to do. And I swear, I mean, I used to spend days and days with boards and we'd do tons of cool, interesting work, but they never had new things to do other than you should put X on your agenda or you should, you know, create ABC committee or what, like none of those things actually matter, right? (laughs) Because they're still coming out of it, complaining about the same stuff. So now they have a, they have the equipment to start addressing the real problems. Will it actually make a big difference in the long term? I don't know yet. I hope so. I really hope so. I, I'll give an example. Okay. This idea of we want to be more strategic. And in fact, I was in, I am doing a bit of obnoxious engagement on this topic on LinkedIn today and yesterday. Oh, okay. Because there's still every survey that gets delivered by a director's association or by a big consulting firm or whatever, asking boards what they're struggling with or what's going well. They, every single one of them for that I've ever seen says boards want to spend more time on strategy. Hmm. And they do. And that has been the exact framing of that problem since the very beginning. And I know boards spend more time on strategy now than they used to. And they still complain that they want to spend more time on strategy. And it's suddenly occurred to me in the last month or so that time is probably not the problem, right? So if we, and I started kind of grilling some of my clients and and classrooms on this is say, okay, if we had time to spend on strategy, what would you want to do in that time that would feel strategic? That would make you come out of it and say, hey, we were just, that was a strategic segment of the board meeting. And most directors and executives can't articulate anything more specific than we don't want to get stuck in the weeds, quote unquote. So as long as we're not stuck in operational minutiae, looking backward, that's what they say they want. But that's what it sounds like they're doing. Right. Then they put a strategic item on the agenda where they get a presentation about some forward looking thing and maybe ask some questions and they still come out of it and they're just like, we want to spend more time on strategy. Hmm. And I'm thinking, oh, 
The problem is they don't know what being strategic feels like to them, Mm. right? So they don't know how to say, okay, look, we want to spend more time on strategy. And during that time, we want to do these things so that we come out of it feeling like we actually did something strategic. So what I'm starting to do is I'm starting to design the work that I'm doing with boards and classrooms around this, okay, let's make it feel strategic so that we can say at the end of a a 15-minute exercise, on a scale of one being deeply operational to 10 being highly strategic, where did that feel? And they'll say eight or nine. And I'll say, great, steal that. Do that instead of doing the stuff that you usually do, right? And drink coffee. Yeah, and drink coffee and make sure that the you've got some mood lighting and make sure that the temperature is where the women feel most comfortable because that optimizes the overall cognitive performance of the room and 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 and, and. but can you give this me this idea, list? Yeah, sure. Put yeah. It in the notes. Actually, uh, season four of my other podcast, One Minute Governance, is all about conditions. So, oh, great. Okay. And, it's, and each episode is between sixty and ninety seconds. I'll roughly. put a link in the show notes. Yeah, thanks. So I went on a tangent. I don't know if that was helpful. It was. It was very interesting. There's also another connection, maybe not a perfect connection, but what you said about being intentional with your decision making reminded me a little bit about Ray Dalio's book, Principles, like looking at the fork in the river or whatever, and you just make those decisions and you wind up in a different outcome or different destination. I was curious if that resonated at all with know. you. I haven't read the book. I, okay. So I should, this, this, I'm going to put it in my notes to there read. So I have no opinion on what you just said, but I okay. will next time we talk. Well, it's better than a wrong opinion. Just kidding. Yeah, right. So you also have this newsletter, this great newsletter that I subscribe to, and I encourage other people to as well. I think yesterday's was on this uh, notion of the activist shareholder. And I was curious, what I really find interesting about your delivery is you have all this knowledge. I get the impression that you change perceptions wherever you go. You're this musician that's in boards, you're academic, but also <laughs> countercultural, anti-gravity, et cetera. Thank you, by the way, for not wearing a suit today as you usually do and oh, yeah, blessing right. me with your, your floral patterns. <laughs> Thank but you. yeah, you're a bit of an enigma, I think it's fair to say. And I like that. And I'm, it seems like you do too. And one thing that I noticed when uh, you were giving that talk was that there were different, it's almost like gears in a car. Like if you think of a manual transmission where you've got first gear, second gear. That's kind of a a loose analogy for how I saw your delivery. I forget how long it was. If it was three hour class or something like that, but you were like revving up. And towards the end, I was like, dang, this guy's sharp. This guy's got like a wealth of knowledge. It was almost like seeing Daniel Day-Lewis like in a role, just completely (laughs) disappear into a different role. It's like, is that the same guy? But so anyway, it's impressive and it's interesting and it's engaging. And yet when you have your podcast or when you have your newsletter, it's very punchy. It's very short. So like the newsletter, I think was like a two minute read or three minute read max. And you get to just the, the whys. So it's like, here's this annoying thing. It's like, oh yeah, I know that person. And like, and here's like seven reasons why. As I, whoa. And then you just leave us with that. And then we're thinking about that. And it completely, like you can apply it to other things. By leaving it open-ended like that, it actually has this outsized impact, this outsized value. So that was a bit of a long-winded way to set this up, but there's a two-part question to that. One is with the shareholder, the activist shareholder, what was the inspiration for that particular newsletter? And two, why do you write the newsletter in that way? Just like, you know, mic drop and you're off. Yeah. Okay. I'll answer the first one second and the second one first. Okay. The fundamental inspiration for Ground Up Governance, the newsletter, was this realization that 
there's so much jargon in this space, this corporate governance space, and there's zero effort to make sure that we're all using the jargon to mean the same stuff. And I see very frequently in boardrooms disagreements that sort of materialize around a lack of a shared understanding of the vocabulary we're using without us realizing that that's the problem. We think we disagree more fundamentally, but really yeah. we're just using the same word to mean different things. And I'll get, mm. I, I swear the most important one is corporate governance. Okay. It's amazing to me. You can go out and read 20 articles on corporate governance, especially good governance, and try to find two definitions that are the same. You can't. Okay. Wow. This is why it was important to me to say, this is what I believe this stuff means. Define terms. Right. And to just say, take all of these different terms that build on each other. And so you'll notice there was originally a sequence and all the definitions in that newsletter are numbered. You don't use a word, a jargon word that hasn't already been defined. So they build on each other. And to just acknowledge, look, we don't talk about what these mean. Here's what I think they mean, period. Right. There's there's definitely a little bit of editorializing built into the way that it's delivered, but I'm never trying to or rarely trying to make a point about the thing as other than to say, here's what's going on here. And it's been really fun because it's super subversive to kind of take the piss out of all these terms that people take really seriously. And I've got this great illustrator, Nate Schmold, who's working with me, and he's so funny. He is really great. And yeah, he's so funny. He's one of the most amazing creative partners I've ever worked with. So that's kind of where it came from. And this is why there's not a so what? It's just intended as definitions. <laughs> and the activist investor one, I mean, if I'm being completely candid with you, I crafted a list and sequence of definitions before I even launched the thing. I've taken a little bit of liberty with it, but I have okay. like 500 terms wow. that okay. in sequence. That I would probably will never get that far. We're up to something like 75-ish now. Okay. The activist thing is still something that, and this is mostly for listed companies, although there is, there's a different flavor of this that happens in the private equity world. But there's an increasing anxiety in boardrooms that's sort of, you know, it's part of that catastrophe avoidance thing, which is what if an activist latches on to us? Where are we vulnerable to that? What would we do about it? And the reality is, for the most part, activists don't become active unless they see unlocked or untapped value that they think they can extract. And I'm not the guy who's going to say, hey, if you're not maximizing shareholder value, that means you're not doing your job as a director. It's, that's not me. And so I do think there's a bit of a double-edged sword here where if an activist comes in and their entire job is to get the share price as high as possible, as quickly as possible, I don't see that as, oh, they've identified some major failure from the board. But there's a reason for this being there, which is that even though activism isn't new, it still creates quite a lot of anxiety and quite a lot of disruption. And it's just, you know, I think that there's a bunch of ways to look at it. But the most important thing is if you've got potentially powerful shareholders in your world, get to know them, you know, like understand what they expect of you. And they're just mm. people too and organizations and, you know, right. anyway, I'll pause there for a moment. 
Yeah, no, thank you for that. And uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of your work. Thanks. I invite everyone to, to check you out and please keep it up. I hope you add those 500 uh, topics. I'm, I'm sure you can surprise yourself. And we better wrap up now, but hopefully we can do a part two at some point. I'm at your service. I love doing this kind of thing and you don't need any prep. You can be spontaneous and just say, hey, Matt, do you want to do another one right now? And if I'm free, I'm there. Cool. Middle of the night. Wake up. Well, yeah, there's a lot of fun. Is there anything that you wanted to like uh, plug as we close? We've already done. If you go, all of my stuff is just at mattfulbrook.com. So that's, you know, that's the home for all the stuff. Anyone who thinks that I have anything interesting to say can learn more about me there, including music. Great. Okay, cool. Yeah, definitely check that out. Well, thanks once again, Matt. Have a lovely day. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to the Rise and Search podcast. I hope that our conversation has sparked some new ideas and given you valuable insights that you can carry forward in your own journey. Until next time, eyes on the horizon. Eyes on the horizon.